We turn to the pages of the Holy Scriptures and we're reading from James chapter 4 and I'm going to read from verse 11, not verse 13, as should be coming up. Yeah. We're reading from James chapter 4 and verse 11. You find that on page 1215 of the pure text. The letter of James chapter 4 and reading from verse 11. Hear the word of God. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting on judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, listen you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sin. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in, in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Jules' perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion 
and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven, by earth, or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Amen. you to turn back to the passage that Bill read for us earlier from James chapter 4 that you'll find in page 1215 of the Pew Bibles. We have been working through the book of James for our summer morning series. Um, so the fact that we're coming towards the end of the series gives an indication that the summer is coming towards an end. It doesn't even seem that the summer has actually started with the weather that we've had but we've been really challenged as we've been thinking about this book of James every week as we have been coming to it. God has been speaking. God has been at work. And so we want to pray before we go any further to come and seek God's face as we approach his word. So let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for the book of James. And Father, we thank you for how over these summer months you have been challenging us. You have been shaping us. Father, through this book, you have been molding us to become more and more Christ-like. And so, Father, we want to pray expectantly now as we turn to your word, that you will be at work, that, Father, you will be working in our hearts to make us more and more the people that you want us to be. Father, may we have eyes to see who we are and eyes to see our holiness. May you be glorified in all that we do. Amen. Just to pick up on the theme Olivia was touching on earlier, talking about the Olympics. How much of the Olympics have you been watching? To be an Olympic athlete, you have to train from one Olympics to the next. They're working four-year blocks at a time. Intensive six-day-a-weeks training regimes, strict diets, because they have a clear focus on what it is that they are doing. Olympic athletes have a clear focus on what it is that they are living for. If you have been listening to any of the coverage, listening to any of the Olympic athletes speaking afterwards, none of them have said that for the past four years, They've been living off a diet of Domino's and McDonald's. None of them have said that they've just been lying in front of the TV every morning watching Jeremy Kyle this morning and Loose Women. Following that was never going to get them to where they wanted to be. They were living the life that they talked about. And last week, James was challenging us to, us to the fact that so often, as followers of God, we can be guilty of saying that we are living for God, but not actually letting that show in our lives. We can say that we are Christians, and yet it doesn't actually show in what we do and in what we say. Well, as we come to think of this passage this morning, we see here that James is giving us three examples, three areas of our life that we can live without referencing God at all. And that's in our personal relationships, our time, and our wealth. 
and in each of them we're going to see how if we are truly followers of God, we should have a godly perspective on it. So firstly then, a godly perspective on relationships. Verse 11, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? We don't need a lot of explanation to what these verses are talking about because we know it. Because we know ourselves, we know our own hearts, we know our own conversations. It's when we talk down or talk about something. It's that little jive that we can't help but pass. That attack on someone's character. That little piece of gossip that we just have to share. That remark that we just have to say. We're all experts at it. And the church that James is writing to, well, they were experts at it as well. If you remember back from the start of chapter 4 that we thought of last week, there were quarrels and there were fights going on in the church. And James said it's all coming from this sinful attitude. It's coming from the sin within our lives. And here we're talking about the sin in which we love to put other people down. We want to attack other people. Because it makes us feel better. And so James says, do not slander one another. And he gives us two reasons why we shouldn't do it. Firstly, he says, you're elevating yourself above God's word when you do it. Anyone who speaks against his brother and or judges him, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment. James says here, whenever we talk about someone, whenever we gossip, whenever we pass a remark about someone, we're saying, God's word doesn't mean anything to me. He says, whenever we follow this behavior, whenever we have this attitude, we're saying, God's word just doesn't matter. James says, it's as if we're saying, I'm not sure about that business of loving your neighbor as yourself. I think I'll just choose to ignore that because I'd far rather be able to attack that person. I'd far rather be able to share that gossip. I'd far rather be able to pass those remarks. Jim says this is what's going on in our hearts. He says whenever we slander someone, we're attacking God's word. Whenever we slander someone, we're saying that God's word just doesn't matter. And then he goes on further in verse 12 to give us another reason why we shouldn't slander. He says not only we are thinking that we're better than God's word, we're thinking we're better than God. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge James says that whenever we ignore God's word, whenever we don't follow what God's word says, we're not just ignoring God's word, we're ignoring God. James says it's as if we say, God, you've got this wrong. It's as if we say, God, why did you say that? Because that just doesn't make any sense. 
as if we're saying, God, you and your word are just rubbish. I'm deciding what's right and wrong. James says there is one lawgiver and there is one judge. James says God made the law and he'll judge you by it. So who are we to rewrite God's law? So whenever we criticize someone, whenever we speak behind their back, whenever we make that snide comment, whenever we're rude or put someone down, James says we are thinking that we are better than God and his word. So he says don't do it. Don't slander. If you're saying that you're a follower of God, well here is part of your life that this needs to show itself out in. And the problem is that we live in a culture we live in a society that is based on knocking people down. Daily Mail, Daily Mail website, for example, is spent, spent full of people, articles that are wanting to knock people down for what they're doing, what they're wearing, where they're going. And it's not just as we look on social media, it's not just as we look on print or on television as we see this, but it's in our everyday conversation. Conversations. It's in our conversations that no doubt we have been having this morning already. And because it's so much part of our culture, it makes it even harder to be counter-cultural. To not pass those remarks, to not say those snide comments. James says what we are to do is to show the qualities of godly wisdom that James has already talked about in chapter 3 being pure, peaceful, submissive, impartial, and sincere. What kind of people would we be? What kind of church would we be if that was what we thought? The story is told of Abraham Lincoln that on one occasion, in order to pass, so he wanted to pass a certain piece of legislation. He issued a command to transfer certain regiments in the army. Whenever Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, received the order, he refused to carry it out, saying the President was a fool. When Lincoln was told about this, he didn't explode out of anger like many a President would have. Instead, he said, if Stanton said I'm a fool, then I must be, for he is nearly always right, so we'll see for himself. So Lincoln met with Stanton. The president quickly realized that his decision was a grave mistake, and without hesitation, he withdrew it. If anyone had the right, if anyone deserved to assert their authority, it was Lincoln, but he didn't. Instead, he was demonstrating those qualities of consideration and submissiveness, of not putting himself before others. James says this is how we are to behave. He says, in terms of our relationships with others, we need to let them reflect wisdom from above. We need to have a godly relationship. We need to have a godly perspective on our relationships. Then secondly, we need to have a godly perspective on our time. James said we need to have a godly perspective on our relationships, how we view others, how we treat others, how we speak about others. And then he says they need to be reflected and also how we deal with our time. Verse 13. Now listen, 
you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James here is speaking to business people who are planning their next business deal. If you're saying, why don't we go to Athens next week, or what about Rome? Get some good trade there, get some good deals there. As we listen to this, it probably sounds like very ordinary language, but it's not planning that James is condemned. The trouble comes in verse 16. These people are boasting. They're being arrogant about their planning. They're planning their future. They're planning their lives with no reference to God, with no relationship to God. They're planning their lives as if they are in control. They assume that tomorrow will happen. They assume that they'll be around in a year's time. And that sort of assumption is arrogant boasting, according to James. Instead, we need to see time in the perspective that God wants us to see it. And that means that we need to see that we are fragile. Verse 14. We do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James says that life is fragile. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Not one of us knows what is going to happen tomorrow. So many of us can testify to the fact that 12 hours, 24 hours has changed our entire world. Anything can happen. So James says, why do we plan boastfully? Why do we live our lives without reference to the only one who can take care of tomorrow? Why do we live our lives without referencing, focusing, having the perspective of the one who holds all time? We're simply mists that are here one minute and gone the next. Jim says we need to recognize how fragile life is. It's said that Eastern emperors, whenever they were crowned on the throne in Constantinople, the court stonemason would set before the new emperor several slabs of marble so that he could pick his gravestone. Jim says, recognize life is fragile. We're not immortal, so why do we so often act as if we are? Why do we plan our lives without any reference to the God who gives us life and who keeps us alive? James doesn't want to leave us feeling depressed. And whilst the Bible tells us that life is fragile and human beings are like the grass of the field here today and gone tomorrow, James reminds us that God is in control. And so in the light of our fragility, he points us to our dependency upon God. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. James says our attitude should be humble dependence on God. Humble dependence on God, acknowledging that all of life comes from him. Do 
you notice what the verse says? That even whether we live the next day, it's dependent on God. If it is the Lord's will, we will live. We are fragile. Life is given to us by God. And James says it's arrogant boasting to think that we can get by for one second, never mind one day, without him as our strength. So the question he asks from these verses, the question he poses to each and every one of us is, are we humbly dependent on God in how we live our lives? Do we leave God out of the picture in the plans that we make? Or is he at the center? Is he directing our every day? It's not planning that James is challenging us on. Rather, it's the planning that leaves God. James says, if you plan your life, if you plan your life without reference to God, when you're like a ship adrift on the ocean, without a rudder or without an engine. But James, in what he has been doing the whole way through this book, brings us back to God, brings us back to the glory of our Savior. And he says, whenever God is at the center, whenever we live our life with God in the middle of it all, then even in the midst of an uncertain world, even knowing that tomorrow is a mystery, we have a God who is perfectly able to get us through the storm, who is able to provide for us in every way. So James says, let's have a godly perspective on time. Our relationships, our time, and then James, in the first few verses of chapter 5, says we need to have a godly perspective on our wealth and our mind. James here seems to be addressing wealthy non-Christian landlords who were abusing their Christian workers. And he's condemning their misuse of wealth. But James has this section in here not just to speak to non-Christians, but to speak to followers of God, Christians as well, on how we use our wealth. James here wants to teach us that there's a real danger, there's a real lure of, of wealth, so we need to be careful. And so whenever he talks about wealth, he tells us three areas in which we can be of danger. Firstly, accumulation, and that comes in the first three verses of chapter. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. What language James uses here? How strong is it? And the sin condemned. The sin that's being condemned here is that of hoarding wealth. James says all wealth, all wealth eventually rots or corrodes. He talks about silver and gold, and you're thinking silver and gold don't rot away. But James says here, in the light of, eternal, of eternity, with an eternal perspective, silver and gold are meaningless, are worthless. You can take nothing with you beyond the grave. All wealth has a sell-by date on it. 
And so important is to completely misunderstand what wealth is for. What did Christ say? Don't store up treasure for yourself on earth, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Wealth is for using, and for Christians, it's for using for gospel purposes. Now, James here is not saying that you shouldn't save, but he's saying there is everything wrong with hoarding. We may want to call it good stewardship. But James says with hoarding, there's a real danger that this is actually great. We're just wanting to get more and more. We're not actually wanting to be good stewards of the money we have. We're just wanting to be, let us get as much as we can. And James says it's all going to work. It's all going to rot away. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you, warns James. Money can be our perspective. James is challenging us on this. He says, let's get money back into the right place it should be and let's get God in the center. But then he goes on in verse 4 and says that money can also lead us to cheat others. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. These wealthy men, these wealthy landlords were doing their workers out of money. These workers needed their wages to live on. They were living hand to mouth. And so what they earned, what they were earning each day, they were spending on food. So these landlords were taking the very food from their mouths. They weren't getting paid, and so they didn't eat. But what are we told? The Lord knows, and he stands up for those abused by injustices. The cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord Almighty. They didn't want to give their employees money because they wanted the money. They didn't want to have to pay somebody for doing a job because then that meant they were giving away money. Do we have a similar attitude? For some of us, have employees, how do we treat our employees? How do we look after them? But for all of us, the question is here, how do we treat others? How do we treat those in social need and social deprivation, social injustices? What do we do with our money? How do we think about our money? Are we in a position to help others, but we don't want to do it? Because that means that we are giving away our wealth. And then it leads us into the self-indulgence that James talks about in verses 5 and 6. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not a victim. James here says that these people that he is writing to and he's writing to us as well. They were enjoying the lifestyle that this money brought. And they wanted to keep it all to themselves. They wanted to enjoy it. They wanted to splurge. They wanted to be able to buy the best food, the best clothes, dine in the best restaurants, drive the best car, live in the best houses, go on the best holidays. As long as it was about spending money on themselves, 
name or hobbling. James warns here and says, you're only having prejudgment. Jim says that they had lost perspective. It was all about gain. It was all about self. It was all about doing what they wanted to do, and they lost God. Money is now their God. Fattening yourselves in the day of slaughter. James warns here and says that money can become such a powerful, dominating, controlling God and idol in our lives that we don't even see that we're heading to disaster. James says here that money can take over so much that we can be on a path to slaughter. James is not attacking having money. Celebration and times of festivity are not wrong. Enjoying what God gives to us is not wrong. Wealth in and of itself is not wrong. But James says we need to examine our motives. We need to think, do I really need this? Do I really have to have this? Could the money I was going to spend on this go to do something else? All too often our default is to spend and buy without thinking. James says we need to have a godly perspective on money. We need to use our money, the gifts, the wealth that God has given us in light of eternity. The Bible says we can't take our money and our possessions with us. We're reminded that only Christians are going to support the work of the gospel. Is that a priority in the use of your God-given wealth? And even if we think we are okay, we need to be aware. Money and possessions are captivating. So James says, be warned. Wealth is another area in which we need to make sure we are living the life we say we are living. Don't hoard it. Don't cheat others with it. Don't be self-indulgent. James, once again, has been challenging us so strongly this morning. And he reminds us in the end of these verses from chapter 5, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And this does two things for us. It reminds us that God is coming. But the end of this world is coming. That one day, every single one of us will stand before God in judgment. But it also reminds us as believers that we keep going. That there is something, something much greater than this world. And so we want to live with that eternal perspective. And we don't want that to start the other side of eternity. That needs to start now. And so that's how we live today. Not next week, not next year, but today. And so James says that shows itself in how we behave in our relationships. It shows itself in how we handle our time. It shows itself in how we deal with wealth. And yet, it's not in our 
strength. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. God abounds in grace and love for his children. So we can live out our relationships the way God wants us to because he's at work within us and changing us and shaping us to become the people that he wants us to be. We deal with our time in the way God wants us to because we remember who we are. We remember who God is. We trust in his sovereign and guiding hands. And we deal with wealth by remembering it's all a blessing from God. We need to view it with that perspective. And yet, we're going to fail on each and every one of those things. For most of us, we're going to fail on each and every one of those things before today is over. But the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Look at the verse where it talks about Job, what God brought about. God is at work within us. God is sharing us. But because of Christ and his death on the cross, we can know God's compassion. We can know God's mercy whenever we feel. And because of that compassion and mercy, we can have the right perspective on our relationships, our time, and our wealth. Because of that compassion and mercy, may we not only listen to God's word, but may we do what it says. Let's live our lives with the perspective God wants us to have. Let's live our lives with the perspective of God who is full of compassion and mercy. Let's pray. Father, remind us what it means to live a life with eternal perspective. Remind us what it means that the Lord's coming is new. And may we be patient and stand firm. May we not just be listeners of your word, but may we be doers of it. Thanking you for your compassion and mercy, which is at work. Thanking you for your compassion and mercy for when we Father, may we live a life that is the life that we join together in our prayers of intercession. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come before you, we thank you for the gospel. Your word which tells us how we can be right with you. Not because we're perfect, but because Christ is perfect. Father, we thank you that the gospel is the message that we stand on. And it's the message that we want to live out and share. And so, Father, we pray that in each of our lives, we will be living out our lives for you. No matter where we are or what we do. This week, we remember especially those from our congregation who are serving you. 
different areas of this land with the desire to spread the gospel. Remember Russell and the work that's happening at Campbell College and Anita and the Shine Camp in Rotterdam. Father, we pray that you will use these events and the other teams happening across this land to build your kingdom and draw people to yourself. Father, we pray that lives will be saved and great things will happen that will count for all eternity. Father, keep teams close to you. And we pray that teams themselves will keep close to your word and close to their saviour so that your glory will be seen during the we pray for our world this morning, and we think of international situations that are close to our hearts. We remember the country of Thailand and the bomb attacks across that land. And we pray that the government and security forces there will know your strength and wisdom as they try to track down those responsible. For the citizens and tourists in that land who are fearful and anxious for their safety, May they know your presence and your grace. Father, Syria is never far from our prayers. And we pray in particular today for the city of Aleppo. Father, we pray that there will be change in that land. Father, we pray that there will be peace in that land. We pray for those who had to flee that they will be able to return. For those who are fearful, those who have been injured, those dealing with grief and loss, draw close, we pray. We bring these areas of the world to you and ask that your kingdom will come into these places and that your will will be done. Father, we thank you that you are full of compassion and mercy. And as we gather together this morning, there are those here who are worried about illness personal illness, illness of a family member, worried about the future, feeling completely overwhelmed and overcome with uncertainty, hearts which are burdened with anxiety and concern. Father God, be with those who are facing sickness and difficulty and enable them to know your gracious hand and strength and that in your grace you may impart to them comfort and Father, we come to you knowing that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power is made perfect in all things. Father, we ask for your help that you would move in our hearts and lives. We do not fully comprehend or understand at times what happens or why things happen. And it reminds us that we are powerless. But then we are pointed to you the one who is sovereign, the one who is powerful, the one who is unknowing, the one whose plan and ways are true and perfect. And so we trust in you. Father, we come this morning thanking you that we can pray, thanking you that you are in the midst of each of these situations and the ones that are lying heavy on our hearts even 